Today our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries. I will stand with you, my friend, for justice will amend America. I'm Jeff Nyquist. Welcome to Outside the Box, where we think outside the box. And uh, this program, we're going to be talking about American defense policy with Peter Husey. And it's going to be a lot of interesting new material, uh, new material even for me, things that I didn't really realize about the direction that U.S. defense policy is taking. This is very important because every American is defended by a complex system. And that complex system is being tinkered with by the current administration. With me is my special guest, Peter Husey. He is currently president of Geostrategic Analysis, a defense and national security consulting business. He has lectured at the School of Advanced International Affairs, John Hopkins University, the Institute of World Politics, and the National War College, as well as the Joint Military Intelligence College. He writes for Human Events, Frontiers of Freedom, and Security Matters. Welcome to the show, Peter. Well, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on the show. You know, your work is extremely valuable because you are following closely what developments are happening in American national security. And I think that the devil is really in the details in national security. And uh, the American people aren't curious enough about it. And they need to know what's going on. And I, I, I really want to pick your brain and find out. But <clears throat> let's start out by talking about the U.S. strategic posture, starting with ballistic missile defense. We know that this was something that Ronald Reagan was a big on, and President Bush withdrew from the ABM Treaty. Uh, what is the state of our national missile defense? What is the new administration and Congress doing? Well, we basically have deployed over the last eight years oh, nearly a thousand interceptors, but they're short range, medium range, and long range. And the areas in which we're got some holes, which we need to work on, is defending against Iran launching a rocket over the North Pole or Korea, North Korea. We have now 30, we're going to have 34 interceptors based in Alaska and California. But they can deal with a warhead that doesn't have any decoys or countermeasures. And at some point, our adversaries may get these things. They don't have them now, but they may. Uh, to give you an example, if the North Korean rocket that they launched in April had the third stage fired, but if it had worked completely, they would have been able to put a 500-kilogram warhead on Miami or 750-kilogram warhead on Indianapolis. This is far more than they were able to do 10 years ago. The way to deal with a warhead and a missile before it separates is within the first three to five minutes of flight. And those two programs, the Airborne Laser and the Kinetic Energy Interceptor, were designed to do that, and those were the two programs killed by the Obama administration at the beginning of this year. Okay. And so we don't have anything in the pipeline to enhance or sustain or make better the current systems we have in California and Alaska. What reason did the administration give for killing it? Well, the Kinetic Energy Interceptor, KEI, had had some 
budget problems. Uh, it had had kind of a checkered history in terms of we weren't quite sure whether we were going to put the missile on a barge or put it on a new ship or put it on land. It was con- it was going to be a very, very fast interceptor instead of like a Navy missile off a ship that goes three kilometers a second. This was going to go maybe six, seven, eight kilometers per second, which would be very fast. So it had that problem. And the airborne laser is on board of basically looks like a big Boeing 747. It's gone through all the tests successfully in this summer. It's going to test against a real-life missile in the air. Uh, Boeing says the range is three to 400 kilometers, plus or minus. It's a lot. Uh, the official word from the Pentagon is that it only can shoot something down 50 miles away. Well, if it's 50 miles away, you've got to get real close to a country, and you've got to get over their territory, and then it's no good because uh, fighter planes or missiles can shoot it out of the sky. So there's... I think, unfortunately, misunderstanding about by the opponents. Plus, it's expensive to build this plane, and a, you need five or seven planes in order to have one operational all the time or two operational all the time. They are in the billion-plus range. But I've seen the simulations that Airborne Laser does. It's a laser that does it above the clouds. Boy, I tell you, it takes out everything coming at you. Hmm. And it... it Let's say, okay, if you would agree, let's not do that. Uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee bill that is now in the, on the Senate floor, uh, some missile defense proponents did add language to the bill that says the Pentagon's got to come up with a plan to not only sustain the Alaskan and California interceptors, but improve them and enhance them so that they're able to deal with graver, greater threats which is a good addition to the, and it's not report language, it's statute, it's legal, it's in the law if it gets passed. And that's a good idea. Now, now I, I, I have a question. This directed energy thing, this is for real. They, they know how to build this now, or is this just something that's... Well, absolutely. Um, I've seen the plane out at Andrews Air Force Base. We walked through it. We saw the computer simulations. They will do a full-up airborne test against a live missile, uh, sometime around the September or maybe a little later. But once they do that, they're going to take the plane and use it as a research test bed, as they call it. And they canceled the second airplane. So it's just going to basically be a research plane. And uh, the, the thing is that solid-state lasers, which a lot of people talk about, just can't do the job that a chemical laser, which is what the airborne laser is. Now, if I could make a ship-borne missile go not three kilometers a second, but four and a half to six and a half kilometers per second. I could put it in the Sea of Japan, and I could shoot down anything North Korea could throw at us. But I'm not there yet. I got a missile that goes three kilometers per second off a ship, not six and a half, not four and a half. And so by 2015, we think we might get to four and a half kilometers per second, but... I don't know. Um, the, the Navy system was deliberately dumbed down in the six in the in the 90s. See that radar is on board the ship, but the problem with radar on a ship is that it looks at the missile on the plume of fire, and coming out of the back of the missile blinds the traditional radar on a ship. So we had to enhance that, and we do it. But if we use radar somewhere else, we could do a much better job. We pick up the missile much quicker. So the Clinton administration deliberately dumbed down 
what they said was theater missile defense because they didn't want to violate the ABM treaty, which, as you know, no longer exists, because the treaty prohibited having um, any missile off a ship that was capable of intercepting a long-range missile. And yet the Russians deploy thousands of missiles that could be used in this role. Well, you, you and I mentioned uh, earlier uh, a great American who's passed away, Bill Lee, from the CIA, mm -hmm. who said the Russian S-300s and S-400s, which they're developing now, were nothing more than missile defenses, but they weren't tested in what was called an ABM mode against a long-range strategic missile, but they had that capability, and as you know, the Russians are now marketing these systems as missile defense systems to various countries around the world. So um, the Abraham Treaty is gone now, but we tied ourselves in pretzels from 1972 through 2002 to make sure we never violated the treaty. And as a result, we dumbed down the systems we could research, and we impeded the capability of those systems now that we have deployed. So we have, we have a lot of catching up to do. Now... We have spent, since Ronald Reagan announced the Strategic Defense Initiative, billions of dollars trying to develop missile defenses for the United States. We get to the point where we have this, this laser technology that can shoot them down from an aircraft, from what you're telling me, and we're not going to build the aircraft to, to, to be able to have a defense against ballistic missiles? Well, the, the one aircraft we've built is expensive, about a billion and a half bucks. Um, my question is, what's the price of an American city? going up in smoke with a, a nuclear bomb or something, or even a chemical or a biological bomb. Um, missile defense has been, as you know, Jeff, it goes against the catechism of mutual assured destruction, which was what we had during the Cold War, which is you can blow us up, we can blow you up, we'll be, we'll be safe. Mm -hmm. But as Dr. Kissinger himself said, I no longer understand the idea that being mutually vulnerable to destruction is somehow make us safe. Right. Particularly when you look at Russia recently under Mr. Putin when he was president in the 90s. So this doesn't have anything to do with Bush, doesn't have to do with anything with Iraq. He developed a doctrine which they adopted, which was, you know, Mary Daly used to say, vote early and often in Chicago. Yes. Putin's philosophy is use nuclear weapons early and often against the near abroad, against the Transcaucuses and Caucasus, Ukraine, Georgia. That's the Russian military doctrine now. Yes. Is to use nuclear weapons right early in a conflict because they say it's de-escalating. And you know your history is that everybody thought going to nuclear weapons would be escalating the conflict and blow the world up. Well, the Russians have decided that it's actually better to go to nuclear weapons. And if you look at what, though they're going to have to do uh, decline in numbers because they don't have the money to modernize everything. Their systems that are going to be left, about 80% are going to be modern. And then they have 10,000 tactical nuclear weapons lying around, of which somewhere around three or 4,000 are actually deployed, which are not subject to the arms control agreement that in principle was announced by the president and President Medvedev in Moscow. Uh -huh. So that's very worrisome in that uh, they are helping North Korea build ballistic missiles. They're helping Iran with its defense. China was recently, a Chinese company was indicted a couple months ago for 118 count indictment by the uh, attorney for the city of New York for using a New York bank to help Iran. And this is very important. 
not only build ballistic missiles, but help Iran with nuclear weapons technology. That's what the indictment says. It was 118 counts, a Chinese company that ironically was using the U.S. bank to finance the deal, and that's how the, the attorney for the city of New York, Robert Morgenthau, got and nailed them. But if you look at Tom Reed, former Secretary of the Air Force, Deputy National Security Advisor to Reagan, his new book, uh, The Nuclear Express, details the companies and countries in China, Russia, and elsewhere that help the Khan network, you know, distribute nukes to Libya and Iran and, and elsewhere, as well as currently helping North Korea and Iran. Hmm. So, I mean, these the, the countries that we, we want China to help us with North Korea and we want Russia to help us with Iran, supposedly they're going to, you know, be nice to us and put pressure on them. They're helping these very countries do the things that are worrying us. And that is very worrying. You know, mentioning how Russia is modernizing its nuclear forces, what is the state of the U.S. strategic nuclear deterrent right now? I've, I've heard some things that are rather alarming. Well, there, there are two parts. There are the platforms on which you launch rockets, uh, launch warheads, and mm -hmm. then there's the warheads. We have had a problem since the early 90s and the Cold War. We have not tested nuclear weapons since the early 90s. We haven't built more than a couple just for demonstration purposes. Our laboratories are very old. Uh, the equipment's very old. They're run down. A lot of the talent we have is retired and old and, and no longer working. We haven't built a nuclear weapon in a long time. Our laboratories were basically allowed to atrophy under the Clinton administration. The Bush administration tried to correct that but didn't have a great deal of success. So we have an infrastructure, what's called the nuclear enterprise, that is deteriorating and in trouble and needs to be refurbished. And believe it or not, the strategic posture of the United States Commission under Bill Perry and Jim Schlesinger, former Secretaries of Defense, issued a unanimous report just a couple months ago saying that's our number one job to get going on that. And I think there's some consensus. I don't know what's going to happen in the administration's uh, quaternium defense review and nuclear posture review, whether they will then adopt the need to redo this. Now, we have three systems that deliver the weapons, our subs, our silo-based missiles, and our bombers. The silo-based missiles have been all redone since 1993. Minuteman's been refurbished for the motors and the propulsion and the, and the uh, system. So there will last till 2020, maybe a little bit longer, but we're now adopting a roadmap to see what we do after 2020. The Trident submarines' uh, hulls will give out in the next uh, 20 years or so. We have to rebuild them, new submarines. That has been approved. Money's a little bit of money's in the budget. And the missiles are being refurbished, so they'll last. The B-2 bomber is close to 20 years plus old, and the B-52s are, depending on who you want to talk to, 40. 35, 40 years old. The B-1s are no longer nuclear, and so we have no plans for a new long-range strategic bomber, which we desperately need to do. So I would say our systems are hanging on, but we have no modernized modernization roadmap except for we're, we are going to build a substitute for the Trident. It'll be a smaller submarine. They'll carry fewer missiles and fewer warheads, but the bill would be $84 billion just for the submarines, not the missiles. You add the missiles in, you're talking about another probably $35, 40000000000 billion. And it's unclear to me that 
either the administration or Congress will sustain uh, a budget that numbers that will allow us to do that. But uh, they haven't said no, and Secretary Gates said this is what we have to do. So, as I said, our systems are old. Our Minuteman has been refurbished and sustained, but it's 1970s technology. And so, well, in terms of our nuclear enterprise, the laboratories, you have, you know, Sandia and Livermore and, and so forth. You have all the major nuclear labs. We let them atrophy. We did not modernize them. We did not attract talent. You know, after Sputnik, we got all sorts of rocket scientists and physicists and engineers. We have not done that in the science and math business in general in America, let alone for the defense business, because most of our guys in the defense infrastructure and the corporate world and labs are old. They're 55, 60, 65 years old. So we have... Let me put it this way, uh, Jeff, as uh, the, the commander of STRATCOM, General Chilton, said last year, we are approaching a cliff, and the question is, are we going to fall off of it? We have not fallen off yet, but unless we take action to stop walking towards that cliff, we will fall off it, and that's not good, and the Strategic Posture Commission uh, God bless Keith Payne, who's head of the National Institute of Public Policy. He and Johnny Foster and a group of other people like Jim Schlesinger did yeoman's work in that commission and basically pulled the reins up on that horse, which was going to go off to zero nuclear weapons and so forth. But the commission, as I said, it was established by Congress. It did a very good job. It called for modernization of our triad and keeping it. It said we need to have a, a strong deterrent. And it said the nuclear enterprise had to be refurbished. Now, the proof, Jeff, will be in what is the budget going to be look like from 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, which we're going to know at the end of the year when the five-year budget plan comes out. Because as you know, we're now living with a one-year budget plan, 2010, which begins October 1st. And it's just a single year, and it was um, not enough money was put in the nuclear enterprise, but Minuteman is okay, and there's no long-range bomber, unfortunately, and there is some money for submarine modernization. With me is Peter Husey. He is currently president of Geostrategic Analysis, a defense and national security consulting business. We are talking about the the crisis in American strategic defense. And uh, I'm Jeff Nyquist. We'll be back with more after these messages. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. Some radio stations are just noise and chatter. WIBG 1020 AM is radio with a passion and purpose. From early in the morning to Grossman Afternoons, Chuck Fetson Sports Saturdays, and Dan Klein South Jersey Insider. WIBG 1020, the area's first choice, plugging you into life. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. And with me is Peter Husey. He is currently president of Geostrategic Analysis, a defense and national security consulting business. And we have been talking with Peter about the uh, problems with the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And uh, what you were just describing, uh, Peter, about the uh, the funding problems. And, and you know, we're, we're in this uh, financial crisis Government revenues disappearing. Uh, is there the will 
with this new government, with the Obama administration and with the Congress, is there the will to sustain not just our strategic defenses, but also our conventional defenses? What is the picture for defense spending in the next uh, three, four years? Well, the president has proposed a 20% cut in nominal terms to the five-year budget. It's going to go down, and supposedly within that top line, we still have to fund Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia and the so-called war on terror. Um, as Newt Gingrich said yesterday at the Heritage Foundation, we are we could be headed towards a catastrophe. Upwards of 65% of our budget, approaching 80% in the out years, will go to personnel, health care, salaries, operations, maintenance, military construction, and housing, meaning no weapons, no research and development. That's squeezing out the procurement part of the budget, which buys weapons, and the research and development, which is your long lead research to, you know, over the horizon, develop things that are going to save us from surprises and new developments that our adversaries are working on, which you never know what they're going to come out with. You know, you could be surprised. Plus, our acquisition process takes so long to buy something, you know, 11 to 13 years between research and development and put it in a field, as Mr. Gingrich pointed out, we have to totally redo the entire acquisition process to make it much more um, elastic, much more flexible, uh, give someone the responsibility to get a weapon out the door, and that's it. Just Instead of everybody piling on and adding things to it and everybody, Congress jacking up this year, we'll do five units, the next year ten, and then five, and adding things that we don't need it's a critical, critical problem that um, the announcement was that instead of being able to fight two medium conflicts like Korea and the Persian Gulf simultaneously, our policy now will be to build to be able to fight one. Well, it is true we were hard, hard pressed to fight two. If you really looked at the numbers, but to announce that you were only going to be able to fight one, the question of the President of the United States is faced with getting involved in a conflict with the Persian Gulf, but he's worried about the Korean Peninsula or Taiwanese Strait, does the president feel deterred because he says, well, i got to keep my powder dry because something may happen over there. And we're cutting things that I don't think we should cut. Like I know the Secretary of the, Air, uh, Secretary of the Defense is not going to like me for saying this, but they killed the F-22 in the Senate today. Uh, 59-40 was the vote. The House put money in the bill for 12 more airplanes. Uh, we need tankers. We need more airlift. We need uh, protection of our fleet. We need to go after, look at cruise missiles. The Chinese are developing major capabilities to what's called deny us access, meaning deny us the ability to come to the defense of Taiwan, to come to the defense of our oil routes, in which oil comes from the Persian Gulf around the world. And uh, Annie Krupenovich, who's one of the best scholars in this business and he has uh, laid out what he called the Defense Department's wasting assets that we're not investing in the over-the-horizon future combat capability we need. Uh, and he's right. I agree with him. And uh, Dan Gray of Lexington Institute, if you guys want to look at the, their website, he points out that we're approaching the time where 80% of the budget is going to go for pay and health care and operations and maintenance and military housing. And that means that RDT and E and procurement are just going to be squeezed out completely. And I, I, I really, I think you're right. I am very, very worried that Congress does not yet understand the threats we face, 
and the dangers that if you withdraw from the world, the vacuum is usually filled with the other guy, but the other guy tends to be the bad guys. Yeah, Russia and China would be, and Iran and North Korea. Is, uh, and Syria. And Syria. Um, and Venezuela. Yes, Venezuela. Now, uh, have you followed this uh, this altercation with Honduras? Absolutely. I mean, I wrote an op-ed about six years ago when Chavez came into power, and I, I tried to uh, not exaggerate the threat from this guy. And the president of the National Defense University sent it around to his email tree, which was about 32,000 people, believe it or not, worldwide. And I got tons and tons of emails saying, ah, oh, you, you let Chavez off the Look, I wasn't tough enough, and I said, look, I think he's going to try to blow up South America. The president of Honduras made a deal with Chavez to print ballots in Venezuela that called for a referendum to change the term of the president of Honduras from four years to as many terms as he wants. That's against the constitution of Honduras. In the Honduran constitution, if you say, if you utter the word, let's change the constitution, you're automatically impeached. And he was impeached by the Congress. The Constitution calls for the military to arrest him. They did. And exile him. Get him out of the country. And unfortunately, the Organization of American States and Nicaragua's Danny Ortega and Chavez all went crazy because this was engineered by them. And unfortunately, uh, our government came down on the side of Chavez and Ortega. We've since backed off and said it wasn't a coup, which it wasn't. The head of the president's same party said he will serve, he's head of the Congress, he will only serve through January, new elections, and he's not going to run. He's going to have new elections. In fact, he said, let's move elections up a month. They did everything by the book. And unfortunately, it's tragic, Jeff, that everybody, the Organization of American States, the Europeans, the World Bank, all the people that give them money, like the Inter-American Development Bank, dumped on poor Honduras. Honduras finally is the one country in Central Latin America that stood up to Chavez and Danny Ortega and the communist FMLN in El Salvador and said, enough. You know, these guys adopted a democratic constitutional system back in 1981 to 83, and the person they gave credit for this is Ronald Reagan. Okay? Hmm. And so they know what they're doing. They've had like four or five consecutive peaceful transfers of power. They understand this. The military in Honduras are well-trained. They're good people, but there's a lot of hangover from the days of the Nicaraguan democratic resistance, or known as the Contras, because they trained and we helped them through Honduras. So there was a lot of knee-jerk reaction from the New York Times and you know the anti-Blame America First types, which was tragic. But my, my, I'm praying for these guys, and you know, 70% of the people of Honduras support the government. You know, I I had the experience a few years ago of interviewing Major Juan Diaz, who was uh, at one time Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela's chief of air staff. And Diaz shocked me by telling me that Chavez was a communist, that his goal was to attack the United States economically through terrorism and eventually through open warfare, that he hated the United States, that he wants to create a new socialist bloc in Latin America. You're 100% right. Remember when uh, Colombia went into, I believe, Ecuador, and they grabbed one of the leaders of FARC, the uh, yes. communist rebels in Colombia, who were also drug dealers. Yeah. And they found a laptop. And they took the laptop, and they opened it up and said, hey, what's on this? 
And they found all these deals between Chavez of Venezuela and FARC about getting $300 million of weapons from Russia and China through the port of, I believe it's Marabella, in, correct, in, off of Venezuela's coast to transfer it through there to the FARC. But they also found what you just mentioned. They found detailed plot to use FARC, the communist rebels in Colombia, and Hezbollah, the Iranian-created uh, terrorist group in Lebanon, to sabotage the oil pipelines from Mexico to the United States in order, as you just said, to collapse the U.S. economy. Wow. Now, Chavez said at the time that it was all hocus-pocus, that we had uh, jury-rigged the laptops, that it wasn't true. So he said, okay, we'll give these to Interpol. We gave the laptops to Interpol to Europe and allies of, you know, socialist-type countries. They looked at the laptops and they said, uh, they came back and said, this is all true, what the Americans said. Now, you didn't see that in the New York Times, and I don't think you saw it in the Washington Post, or Katie Couric certainly didn't announce it, but... Here you have China and Russia complicit with Venezuela with a Marxist guerrilla organization, FARC, with an Iranian-backed guerrilla uh, terrorist organization, Hezbollah, working together to sabotage oil pipelines from Mexico into the United States to bring down the economy of the United States. Huh. And they're receiving weapons from Russia and China. That's what we're fighting. There's a $300 million deal that Chavez had signed with the Russians. There is some question as how much of this has been received since. See, when the laptop was found, Chavez kind of backed off of his claim that FARC was the future of Colombia. He said, well, they're gone. Well, they're, they're almost defeated, but not quite. Uribe, the president of Colombia, God bless him, should be put on Mount Rushmore for crying out loud and get a Nobel Peace Prize for what he's done. And, by the way, what our American State Department, military, AID, all the agencies of our government have done an extraordinary job, and I think I will go out on a limb and say we have won the war against FARC in Colombia. Huh. Uh, it's extraordinary, because I remember 10 years ago when we had this big fight in Congress, both left and right were for it, and both left and right were against it, saying, ah, oh, we're going to get another Vietnam, it's shouldn't send American boys and girls down there, but my God, they've done an extraordinary. And it's been the president of Colombia said, the person who saved my country was George W. Bush. Uh, history will show that that's true. Whatever you may think about President Bush on this one, and it's outrageous that Congress will not pass the Colombia-U.S. free trade agreement. Yeah, I noticed that. That was outrageous. And I read somewhere that... Uh that President Obama uh, had at some point some problem with Uribe. Well, the issue was, according to the U.S. labor unions, was that labor unions weren't being protected in Colombia. Well, the violence in Colombia is almost all directed by FARC, the communist guerrillas. So the poor countries in the midst of us, not a civil war, but a guerrilla war, and our Labor unions are worried about the protection of labor union people in Colombia, which is all well and good, but they should be concerned about the well-being of the people in Colombia as a whole, and a free trade agreement would be an enormous boon to Colombia. I mean, it's the same thing with Korea. The European Union is negotiating a free trade deal with Korea now, and the Korean-U.S. free trade deal is sitting in the Senate, and they will not bring it up. Again, because the AFL-CIO 
is saying that the trade agreement doesn't go far enough in protecting uh, foreign trade unions and the environment and some other a number of other things. But it, it, it's again, uh, you can't. Colombia is in the midst of a civil war, or not a civil guerrilla war. They can't necessarily have exactly the same standards that we would apply here in America for our own labor unions. So it is tragic, but uh, again, it, 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 again, it's so so short-sighted. Uh, if the European Union can sign a deal with the Republic of Korea and Colombia, why can't we? The deals are there; they've been negotiated. There would be a boon to both countries including ourselves. Yeah, well, it seems like Colombia should be our best ally in Latin America, and they are. to snub them in any way seems completely counterproductive to helping American policy advance its goals. Well, you know what happens when new administrations come in, they tend to look at what the other guy did as, well, that had to be wrong. I suppose, I mean, if a Democrat becomes, you know, Democrat goes to Republican or Republican administration or Democrat, and it's so tragic because instead of looking at these things like, hey, they got it right, let's continue it. Um, we, we, we're in this business where the Democratic Congress can't bring these trade agreements up because the AFL-CIO will go crazy. So they're, in a sense, being blackmailed. And I also think that it's so short-sighted, but um, maybe wiser heads will prevail, particularly given the economic downturn we're in. A free trade agreement is exactly the way you want to promote trade and investment and jobs and, and growth. The last thing you want to do is cut trade back. Let's shift, shift the topic a little bit yeah. um, about the situation in the Middle East with Iran and its, uh, its determination to go ahead with nuclear weapons development right. and the new administration's policy. What, you know, I saw the uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu with uh, Obama, uh, what was it, a couple months ago, when he came to Washington, uh, almost lecturing President Obama about Iran as a dangerous country that it needs to be uh, sort of roped in. Um, are we looking at uh, a settlement of some kind, or, or is this thing still out of control? Are we headed for trouble in the Persian Gulf? Jeff, it's a very, very good question. Let me lay out what I see as our options. There are those who think that if you engage the Iranian government, particularly now that they feel perhaps less than um, solid with respect to support of their own people, which, by the way, the people never supported them. It's just now more visible. But they're continuing to throw kids off roofs and shoot people and imprison them and so forth. The uh, Ahmadinejad appointed, a, I believe, a vice president who everybody thinks is moderate. But they're not going to stop their support of terrorism and their sponsorship of terrorism. That is what they live for. They believe Their constitution calls for the violent export of Khomeiniism, which is Shia radicalism. Nuclear weapons, in their view, is the top cover, the umbrella, under which they will hide, and they believe no one will touch them and stop them from doing this. I'll give you an example that's close to home. The mayor of Los Angeles has a bid from Simmons to build rail cars for the subway. And the city council is in the midst of looking at divesting their public pension funds from any company that does business with Iran. Well, Simmons sold Iran their technology to 
basically put the kibosh on cell phones and Internet, among other, other companies. And the mayor, who's a Democrat, said, wait a minute. Why do we want to do business with these guys? So they may not do business with Simmons. And my view is you can engage Iran uh, dip- diplomatically, forget it. Ain't going to happen. They'll rope-a-dope you to death. You could use military force to take out their nuclear sites, those that you know of. You delay the nuclear program X number of years. Iran could come back and try to close the Straits of Hormuz. Oil prices would go to $150 a barrel, and the economy would sink back to where it was. So basically a lot of people think that even though it might be only temporary, they say, oh, we won't do that. There is one thing we could do. We cut their gasoline imports off because 40% of the gas they import that's refined because they can't refine it themselves. Unfortunately, the Chinese just announced a $40 billion, with a B, investment in Iran to build refineries. There's a bill in Congress by Senator John Kyle, you know, from Arizona. It's co-sponsored by Birch, uh, Mr. Bai of Indiana and liberals and conservatives alike saying if you do business with Iran, you don't do business with America. And I've been pushing this for years and years and years. I've been talking about divestment of all our public pension funds from any company that does business in Iran, whether Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse or Total, the, the French energy industry, all three of which have pulled out of Iran. But the investment banks don't want to do it uh, because they see the dollar signs of oil and gas. The Iraq survey group, you know, they want to engage with Iran and trade and do business. We have the lever to basically take Iran's economy down the tubes, hmm. and we should. That's our one lever that we have worldwide, and Sarkozy, to his credit, in 2007 in December, or November, excuse me, called for what he called a worldwide divestment campaign against Iran. That would hurt him. That would get their attention. But when you only sanction 10 of their people and 10 of their companies, and China after having, you know, voted for sanctions in the UN and then voted against tougher sanctions, announces a forty billion dollar investment deal to build refineries in Iran so they can have be self sufficient in gasoline. Iran doesn't take anybody any that seriously, particularly the Chinese and Russians, who everybody says is critical, you know, to get the Iranians to quote unquote behave. And have the Russians gotten the Iranians to behave? Of course not. No. In fact, they're helping them misbehave. Yes. Which is what my point earlier was in terms of if you look at uh, Mr. Reed's book, The Nuclear Express, details the companies and countries that have been involved in helping Iran and North Korea and the Khan network in Libya and Syria before that develop both nuclear weapons and uh, ballistic missile technology and other defense things. So it's, in my view, Unless we take the economic route, which we have the power to do, we will be forced to do one of two things. We either will have to live with a nuclear-armed Iran, which means they will get away with literally murder, because that's they have decided that murder is the way they're going to export their revolution, and that's what they're doing. They're killing American soldiers in Iran, Iraq. They're killing uh, folks in Afghanistan. They're at war with Israel. They're at war with Lebanon. Uh, they're supporting Hamas and Hezbollah. The Moroccan government has broken off relations because they routed up some Revolutionary Guard guys in Morocco who are going to blow up some government buildings, the same thing in Cairo. And Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guards folks have been arrested in Gutter 
and I believe Saudi Arabia, though I'm not, I don't recollect. But in a sense, what I ask myself the question: What countries are Iran not at war with? And yet, they're at war with us. And it, it's like before World War II, people sitting around saying, "Well, we can sit down with Herr Hitler, and we can talk to him." And everybody, the liberals say, "Oh, no, no, you can't use the Hitler analogy because you always do." But it's an analogy that is right because the same arguments were used by Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Britain, said, well, you know, if we, you know, stop trade with, you know, get rough with Germany, trade will suffer. You know, as Churchill pointed out, that's the point. But here, investing in Iran, American companies aren't, but the world is. A lot of the they're investing, they're trading. Iran doesn't take this seriously. They, they, they realize that we're, the dollar signs, um, overcome the sense of security. And a lot of Europeans, I believe, don't believe Iran is a threat, which is, Jeff, because these people will blow up. My worry is if they get a nuclear device, it's going to go to Hezbollah or Hamas or some terrorist group, and it will be in a European or an Israeli and an American city in a heartbeat, and it will be detonated. And my that that is my I'm, nuclear terrorism is my specialty. To me, that is the number one threat facing America in the world today. It's not Al Qaeda, not the Taliban. Uh, albeit Pakistan is a serious problem, but I think the Pakistani government is actually now fighting for its survival. Thank God. But there's still elements within the Pakistani military and the ISI and others that are pro-Taliban. I don't don't. I don't diminish it on a scale of zero to hundred. If hundred is Iran, you know what's going on in the, with the, these guys in, in Pakistan is probably eighty, eighty-five. But Iran, to me, if they get a nuclear weapon, they will use it because, as someone once pointed out, Ahmadinejad likes the idea of mutual assured destruction. He gets to the seventy-two virgins quicker because, as you know, Khomeiniism believes that the 13th uh, Imam, the Mahdi or whatever, is coming back only after Armageddon. Oh, yes, that's right. And if you, if you read it, it's a wacky idea. I mean, most people don't understand that Khomeiniism, this is the guy who ran the revolution in 79, the guy who comes back with the Mahdi is Jesus Christ. But he comes back as a Muslim. And he comes back and trashes all the Christians and Jews who didn't get it right because they didn't become Muslims. I mean, it's wacky. It's not the time for a theological lesson. Right. But people should go and look at Jed Babin's book in their own words. You know, he's a former Assistant Secretary of Defense and head of editor of Human Events now. He's written a book about everything Ahmadinejad and Khomeini and Rafsanjani and others have said about what it is they're up to. And this isn't a matter of misunderstanding or they need to be, you know, sat down and, as, as Wesley Clark once said, well, we have to sit down with them and get to know their children. <laughs> so, basically, they're, if I'm understanding you right, they're set for Armageddon, and they want it to happen. Well, Ahmadinejad is. The supreme leader, people believe he's not an apocalyptic guy, but a guy who will back off from the abyss tactically to gain time. As I said, play rope-a-dope. And I'm not quite sure, you know, the Revolutionary Guards are split, but a lot of them are like Ahmadinejad, who came from them. He's an apocalyptic guy, meaning that he would bring down the temple on his head. 
With me is Peter Husey. He's currently president of Geostrategic Analysis, a defense and national security consulting business. I am Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and we'll be back with our guest after these messages. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. I encourage everyone to go to my website, which is jrnyquist.com, and also strategiccrisis.com. That is jrnyquist.com. I write a column that comes out every Friday for financialsense.com, and I encourage everyone to go there and, and read everything on Financial Sense because it's really the place to go for understanding the economy and what's going on with the markets. WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, they oh, one time kick, they bloop it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this station more, I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere. And we're back on Jeff Nyquist. This is Outside the Box, and with me is my special guest, Peter Husey, currently president of Geostrategic Analysis, a defense and national security consulting firm. Peter, this stuff about Iran is very scary. I also hear some things about uh, North Korea. We had these tests recently. And there were three Russian generals, I believe, that came to the United States to give testimony that the people that had worked on the super EMP bomb for Russia, some of them went over to North Korea. Uh, is it possible that North Korea's nuclear deterrent program is a super EMP weapon and that the reason that they're only building a few of these large three-stage weapons is that they don't need very many to put us in the Stone Age? Well, the EMP, we just had a hearing on Capitol Hill this afternoon. For those of you in the audience who don't know what it is, is if you take a relatively small nuclear weapon, detonated at 200 miles above the U.S. over, let's say, Chicago, everything in the line of sight would fry. Your switches on your water, irrigation, uh, electrical supplies, electricity, all your cars wouldn't work, uh, your sewer, your, your transportation, and we'd grind to a halt. The commission, EMP commission, that recently issued its report said that the United States would basically go back somewhere in the middle of the 19th century. So if you wanted to talk to somebody, you would have to be right next to them. If you wanted to go anywhere, you could either ride a horse or if you had an old Studebaker or Edsel that didn't have uh, computer chips. It's a nightmare scenario, scenario, but it doesn't take more than a guy with a freighter and a Scud missile with a nuclear device of two or three kilotons, launch it over high up in the atmosphere. We wouldn't even know it went off. But everything would, you know, when the electricity goes off and you're sitting in your house, that's what would happen. Cars would come to a standstill in terms of everything in the line of sight. The Iranians tested a ballistic missile in this mode in the Caspian off a barge. And they detonated it. They called it a success. Our intelligence community said it was a failure because it did blow up, but it blew up right about that altitude. North Korea has not yet tested a missile in that mode, but if that third stage on their rocket that they launched works, 
they could detonate something, let's say, over the west coast of the United States or over the, you know, Nevada or Grand Coulee Dam or something, depending on how far it went, and they could uh, basically fry the circuits out west. Now, it's interesting. Benny Thompson is a Democrat from Mississippi, chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee. Yvette Clark is the congresswoman from Brooklyn, New York, a Democrat, chairman of the Terrorism and Unconventional Threat Subcommittee. Both have endorsed the EMP threat as serious, and they have got legislation to harden our infrastructure. They're trying to get some of the stimulus money uh, reprogrammed to use for this because a smart grid actually makes us more vulnerable because it is more computer-run. And so they had a hearing today with the chairman of the commission and a number of other people from the utility electrical grid industry. They're willing to do something, but they need guidance and they need partnership with the government. And the vendors are all different and all utilities are different. So if we, we can get this right, Europe, on the other hand, interesting is the private sector has hardened 300 critical nodes all over Europe, which are banking, water, electricity, all on their own without the government money. They just did this because you could do it without a nuclear weapon. You could, take, for example, take a radiation device on the back of a pickup truck, set it off, and it would fry everything in three miles. Uh, the Navy did some experiments down here in Dahlgren on the Chesapeake Bay on exactly that. It's called non-nuclear radiation weapon. And that's not as terrible as something, a nuke going off in the atmosphere, but you could, let's say, have 50 of these going off somewhere in an American city around the country in a pickup truck, and the device is something that you can't tell. It's a non-nuclear radiation device, but that's all it needs to be done. Now, you can harden stuff against this, uh, but it's it's not easy, but about $4 billion a year for five years would do most of it for our major systems. For major systems. Uh, now, I've heard that if we get one of these EMP attacks, that the population of the United States would be reduced after a certain period of time because we couldn't feed people. Well, that's the scary thing. As Bill Graham is, was Ronald Reagan's science advisor, a lot of people thought that the commission report, though it was unanimous, uh, was trying to push missile defense because one way to deal with this problem is have a Aegis cruisers on our shores uh, or F-15s with a modified AMRAAM to be able to shoot down these Scud missiles. But even if you don't like missile defense, okay, put that aside. you got to harden the infrastructure, and you're exactly right. Bill Graham testified today that our population, by the commission's estimate, within a year would be within, uh, we'd have 20% of the people left in this country. 80, 80% would die. Yes. That's interesting. The Republic of Korea and Japan have both publicly said within the last month, pleaded with the United States military and our science folks, please help them deal with this because it just dawned on them that North Korea could launch a nuclear warhead over Japan, detonate it way above in the atmosphere, and fry everything in Japan. And that's why Japan takes seriously missile defense because if you can get the rocket before the detonation, well, you can drop the thing back on North Korea. And God forbid it would hurt, hurt the North Korean people. They've suffered enough, but... They don't have an electrical infrastructure. They don't. None at all. In fact, if you see those famous pictures of North Korea at night that... Yes. 
Victor Rumsfeld had that was black. Yes, I've seen those pictures. Yes, I, I attended a military briefing where I saw them. Yeah, it's astonishing. South Korea, you can see the shrimp boats. You can see it lit up like a Christmas tree. Yes, absolutely. North Korea is dark except for this little dot around Pyongyang. Yes, yes. Yeah. So one of the things about launching it from a freighter is the jihadis that might run the freighter. Hell, they, they don't care about going to Davy Jones' locker. They get to the 72 virgins, but in that case it would be mermaids quicker. Uh, who would you attribute it to? Uh-huh. On the other hand, North Korea may not care. I mean, that, that, that North Korea is different than Iran in that my worry is the North Koreans may sell this stuff. They sell ballistic missiles big time. They earn uh, billions of dollars a year on all sorts of you know, narcotics, heroin, date rape drugs, uh, counterfeiting $100 bills, you know, selling ballistic missiles, and, and so forth. Uh, they might sell this stuff, including a nuclear device. And we know the Iranians have been at the test site in Korea. And we know Koreans have been in Iran. And as you remember, the Koreans helped build the Syrian nuclear plant that the Israelis took out hmm. back in September 2007, I believe it was. Uh, a facility that everybody now thinks Iranian money built it in order to use that to make nuclear fuel for weapons in case the Iranians had to shut down their other plant. Well, well, tell me, uh, Peter, these threats are so real and so dire. What is it about the members of, of congressional committees and the Obama administration, what is it that they don't get about the necessity of spending their money to defend the country? Well, instead of looking at that, what I look at it is I think Congress is waking up to the EMP issue, particularly today's hearing very pleased it's bipartisan Congressman Bartlett of Maryland, who's a great member of the Science Committee and Armed Services, created the commission, and he was today here at the hearing. So we may get finally some action here. The question is, you know, the government can, someone once said, screw up a two-car funeral. Um, hopefully they'll get it right. On missile defense and divestment, my family comes from Nazi Germany, I'm first-generation American. One of my grandfathers was in the German resistance and was killed by the Nazis. Another one was Jewish and fled and got out in 33. Both my grand, One of my grandfather, his widow is still alive. She's 98. And my grandfather, who's Jewish, who got out, they've all said the same thing, and that is when faced with great unpleasant conclusions or implications, the human mind tends to run towards the safe and the easy. And it's human nature not to want to face unpleasant things. And given the fact that the world hasn't blown up yesterday, okay, we, you know, you and I know that when our, you know what's on fire, that's when we get our act together, right? And that happens in your life. When, 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 when the boss says, hey, shape up, uh, the wife says that, or, you know, acquaintances, um, you pull yourself up short and say, ooh, i got to get my act together here. Our hope is in an open society where none of this, as Newt Gingrich said yesterday, none of this is secret. You know, I'm borrowing a lot from him, because if, if those of you in your audience go to the Heritage website and, and see his remarks yesterday were extraordinary. Jeff, it, it, nothing's secret, but it is, it is, it is tough to do. Uh, it's like immigration. It's tough to do. It means we're going to have to change some of the things we do. But 
You know, Jim Wolsey, the former CIA director, says we won World War II, and Newt said this yesterday, we won World War II in three years and eight months. My God, you telling me, uh, he was pointing out it took 24 years to modernize an airport. I can't remember if it was Denver or where it was, but it was, it was kind of funny. Um, we always have an excuse in government and the bureaucracy and in, even in industry, we don't have to do that or not today or we can't do that. Everybody's got an excuse. Um, if the American people stand up and say, Congress, you got to do this and get they don't have to be involved as much as, you know, I know they got work to do. they got to take the kids to school. they got to work hard. They're trying to get a job if they don't have one. They're trying to, you know, take care of the family. But it's amazing the extent to which you pick up the phone and talk to your congressman or go to one of his town meetings. Uh, as you've noticed, the members that came home after the uh, the Kyoto thing, you know, the, the cap-and-trade thing got bombarded with uh, real, real concern, and my understanding and I hope I'm right, is that the cap-and-trade bill is dead. But that's because Americans stood up and told a lot of these Democratic congressmen that came back from Congress that no way you're going to tax me this way. So hopefully, Jeff, shows like this and concerns that the Speaker of the House, former Speaker of the House, was talking about today, and leaders like John Kyle in the Senate and Jeff Sessions from Alabama and Trent Franks from Arizona in the House and Pete Sessions and other folks may be get us to the point where we can uh, take not only take these seriously, but once taking them seriously, do the things that the Constitution says provide for the common defense. Very good. Th- thank you very much for that, Peter Husey. Uh, Peter, are there any uh, last comments you'd like to make for our listeners? Um, go on your internet, uh, call your congressman, just uh, don't give up. It takes persistent help in this area. Um, there are a lot of organizations like Frank Gaffney's Center for Security Policy, Cliff Mays Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, uh, the Heritage Foundation. There are a lot of groups that are working on this day and night. Uh, find them, get involved, help out. Uh, when your voice is heard, uh, it'll change the world because it has. Yes, it has. Uh, and Peter, I want to thank you for your voice. Peter Husey, currently president of Geostrategic Analysis a defense and national security consulting firm. Thank you so much for being on the program. Jeff, thank you very much. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. The American people need to be vigilant, and they can't take their security for granted. The one thing that I've noticed looking at Americans is they assume the invincibility of their country. They assume that their country is not going to be hurt in a future conflict or war. But the United States, like any country, is vulnerable. It has weak points. It can be attacked either militarily, politically, economically, by terrorists, or by subversion. And if anybody looks at what's happened in the United States, we see that anti-American ideology has entered our universities, our businesses, our think tanks, and people are not even recognizing it as anti-American. And I just want Americans to realize that vigilance across the board and the defense of the country is important, and we all have to take responsibility. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope you'll join me next week at this time for another edition of Outside the Box. America.